You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. Starting off the news program this evening, we will be rebroadcasting the last update we had with Pascal from Humanet. This was recorded at 4 o'clock, and Steve Baker and Keith Porter spoke with Pascal about the current situation with power outages and fires. First of all, why don't you give us an update on the PSPS situation, because a lot of folks have power, but I'm suspecting some don't. Uh, yeah, some don't. Uh, some don't, like even at HQ, uh, and uh, people in, uh, in the Grass Valley area, uh, the estimated restoration time was first, it was 3 o'clock, then it was 3.30, and has just been pushed back to 6 p.m. And so uh, they are, uh, they have decided, the official explanation is, uh, it will remain off at the locations to help prevent the wildfire. They're not saying that there is any anything wrong with the circuits, but... Uh, I mean, it is a little breezy outside, so I don't know if that that enters into consideration, but uh, quite a few people are still out, and uh, yeah, 6 p.m., we'll see. Any idea about approximately how many people don't have power and how many have yeah. regained it? I, I think that uh, the uh, majority of uh, Nevada City proper has been restored and uh, a portion of Grass Valley, but everybody else is still out, so... Um, probably so at least uh, another 10,000 people that should be that, that are out. That would be my guess. Okay. Well, the, why don't we move on to the fire situation because that certainly uh, um, is, well, actually, the uh, Bear Fire is a national news story. Yeah, the, the Bear Fire is, um, is uh, national news uh, and uh, Right now, uh, we just got some some photos uh, from a uh, from lookout, and uh, I have to say that it's it's quite it's quite impressive. It's making a push to the it's making a push to the south right now, so that's that's new, um, and uh, everybody is uh, very qu- uh, closely watching this because um, <clears throat> there is uh, a. The, it's basically pushing towards Laporte, the town of Laporte again, and uh, there's a lot of activity going on. But the problem is with all the smoke; uh, it's basically impossible for the for the uh, tankers to actually work. And that's definitely that's, a, definitely a hindrance. Um. Well, yes, because they, because if they can't lay down a retardant line to slow the progression, uh, it gets it gets very complicated. And then, of course, we also have the Willow Fire uh, that uh, started last night at uh, 1 a.m. And that one is uh, burning, too. Uh, we have the Fork Fire on the El Dorado National Forest that's going. Uh, so, yeah, there is uh, there's quite a bit of activity. And uh, there is also, we got another smoke and haze to return starting uh, Thursday afternoon. And then it's going to warm up again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's quite a there's quite a bit of uh, activity, and I'm really it's it's 
it's almost like, uh, can we get a break? But apparently not. And the people that didn't believe our descriptions uh, in the ba- in, of uh, w- the clouds here yesterday, yeah. well, they certainly got a wake-up call this morning, huh? Uh, I, I believe that uh, everybody, uh, they thought that they were living on Mars all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, That's, I saw uh, that. I, I've heard those, I, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, wait. Uh, yes, the, um, the, um, the, satellite, the satellite imagery is just amazing. Because we actually have, um, right now, we have relatively good uh, air quality as compared to the, um, to the, uh, the Bay Area and, and the whole coast. Because there's also, of course, the Mendocino fire, the, the August complex that is still putting up a lot of smoke. And with the wind event yesterday, all these, the majority of the smoke, after passing over us, uh, when went down and it's it's on the coast, but uh, that's about to change. So we, if the delta breeze returns, all that stuff's going to come back up here. Well, it was yeah. uh, like uh, you know, you looked up at the sky, and I wanted to hear the four horsemen of the apocalypse because it looked like it was uh, something was changing in the way the world worked yesterday. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and <clears throat> um, I mean, it's amazing the. The, the 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 bear fire put on at least a hundred thousand acres yesterday, at least. Um, there is uh, the one of the perimeter maps shows it actually uh, at two hundred fifty thousand acres. It's it's uh, unconfirmed yet, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised because it is just it's just massive. And now it's, how it's incredible. How about evacuations? Uh, is uh, uh, is Oroville uh, evacuated? Uh, no, Oroville uh, per se is not evacuated. Uh, there are uh, <clears throat> additional uh, evacuations. Um, Box Lake, uh, in the Box Lake area, uh, the Butte County line. Uh, then there's Meadow Valley is uh, evacuated. There is a Lower Cow. There is an evacuation warning for that for that side. So uh, and the evacuations they they change they just come. Uh, larger. I mean, even for the Willows fire, uh, you know, uh, 3,000 people are evacuated. And the evacuations center for uh, helping those folks uh, established is in Yuba City, is that correct? Yeah, there, well, there are, there are several centers that have been uh, established because they, because the, these fires are so uh, so massive. So that, <clears throat> that is definitely... Uh, the um, the uh, Alco Center in Oregon House and Yuba's at the fairgrounds uh, are, are open, so that all that is uh, uh, they have that, and of course there is with COVID uh, they are trying to uh, place people if possible uh, into hotels or motels so that people don't have to congregate and then add that on top of everything else. Oh. Steve, I think you had a, uh, some information at the 3 o'clock update from one of the regional foresters in California talking about uh, the unusual aspects of all this, uh, these events. Yes, I, I did. I, and Pascal, you, uh, uh, Nick Nosler, he's actually a fire mm-hmm. weather specialist with the yep. National uh, Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho, saying this event is unprecedented. I've talked to people who have been in fire for 20, 30, 40 plus years. They've never seen anything like this before. Not this many large, rapidly spreading wildfires across such a broad region. Yeah, 
because let's not forget it's not just uh, our immediate area. It is uh, all of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, it is it is the, the the activity and the rates of spread uh, of these fires. Uh, it's just yeah, it is unprecedented indeed. And uh, this also has prompted something that we've never seen before, which is the closure of all national forests in California. Uh, yesterday, uh, they started out, no, I think on Monday, actually, started out with uh, Southern California. And uh, uh, today at noon, the uh, Region 5 forester, which uh, uh, decided to close all national forests to the public because the fire danger is just so extremely high. So another historic event uh, in, a, in an historic fire season that's only in its beginning. It is only in its beginning, and uh, uh, we have, uh, so this was our first wind event, and from now on, they're just going to get stronger and, and last longer. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> knocking, on, knocking on wood. <laughs> uh, you know, um, yes, uh, knocking on wood, you know, but with, with all the, the timber that is burning right now, uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, also, one thing... Uh, uh, that needs to be said, amazingly enough, is if anybody has the really bad idea of trying to fly a drone to get some, to capture some footage, if you fly a drone, there are temporary flight restrictions of all these fires. You cannot fly a drone. You may not fly a drone. It is illegal to fly a drone. Also, if you fly a drone, they have to ground all their air assets. That includes the air attacks or the spotter planes, the helicopters, and if the tankers can fly, they all have to return until uh, the drone has left the area. So don't do that because uh, uh, there's no footage that's worth it. And if you get caught, the fines are pretty severe and rightfully so. Anything else, Pascal, that we need to relay to our folks at this point in time? Well, um, you know, the uh, Nevada County has uh, the resource uh, fair for people that were impacted by the Jones fire. Remember the Jones fire? Uh, that is going on right now at the Nevada County Fairgrounds. There's a resource center uh, where all the agencies are. And if you were impacted by the Jones fire, you can go there and uh, everything from the assessor to NID, uh, PG&E, AT&T, building, OES, uh, the fire agencies, they are there. And if you, uh, if you need assistance or uh, you need to find out what to do next, uh, that's right now that is taking right place at the fairgrounds right now until 7 p.m. Excellent. Okay, Casca, well, thank you very much. You are listening to KVMR-FM Nevada City, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. 
For their support, we'd like to thank HBE Rentals, Nevada and Placer Counties, Equipment Rental and Supply Yard since 1994, serving homeowners and businesses with high-reach equipment, including aerial work platforms, scissors, and boom lifts. Information at GoHBE.com. And Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll be hearing a special NPR report of the fire situation in Oregon The report includes information that the town of Medford, with 80,000 residents, has been evacuated. Also, we'll have this week's National Native News and a commentary from George Rabane. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by local weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Donald Trump is dismissing revelations from an upcoming book by Bob Woodward, which includes comments from Trump admitting to downplaying the severity of the coronavirus pandemic. NPR's Issa Roscoe reports Woodward's book is set to officially be released next week. President Trump calls Bob Woodward's new book a, quote, political hit job. Woodward's reporting included more than a dozen interviews with Trump himself. Back in March, Trump told Woodward that he played down the dangers from the virus so people would not panic. Trump defended that decision. But we don't want to run around screaming, shouting, oh, look at this, look at this. We have to show leadership. And leadership is all about confidence. And confidence is confidence in our country. Trump also told Woodward in February that the coronavirus was more deadly than the seasonal flu. But in public, he repeatedly cast doubt on that idea. Aisha Roscoe, NPR News. An official at the Department of Homeland Security says he was pressured by agency leaders to make his intelligence reports reflect the priorities of the Trump administration. In a whistleblower complaint, Brian Murphy contends he was demoted from his job at the Office of Intelligence and Analysis in retaliation, refusing to alter his reports on matters, including Russian interference in the election and the extent of the threat posed by white supremacists. A copy of the complaint was released today by Representative Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee. Schiff says he's asked Murphy to testify before Congress. DHS had no immediate comment. High winds across northern California are creating more challenges for firefighters there who are now battling more than two dozen major fires. Some 52,000 people are under evacuation orders. As Kate Wolf from member station KQED reports, dangerous conditions have led to the closure of all national forests in the state. Cal Fire reports that there were 51 new fires in the state yesterday, and firefighters contained most of them to just a few acres. But strong winds blew two fires in Northern California out of control and stoked the spread of existing fires that were just getting contained. Cal Fire spokesperson Lynn Tolmachoff. So those are the challenges are getting those newer fires, uh, getting some containment on those um, and trying to keep them in check today while we still have the wind. Tolmachoff says Cal Fire expects winds to dissipate over the next few days, which should help firefighters gain some ground. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wolf in San Francisco. Taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, things are cooling off a bit. A low of 67 tonight, high of 86 
tomorrow with highs in the mid-80s through Sunday and cooling to the upper 70s next week. In Sacramento, low of 59 tonight, high of 92 tomorrow with highs in the low 90s and uh, that'll be through Sunday and next week. And in Truckee, low of 34, high of 80, highs in the upper 70s and low 80s through next Monday. Next up, we have this special report from NPR on the fire situation in southern Oregon. People living in the southern neighborhoods of Medford, Oregon, have been given that order. Winds are driving fires across the Pacific Northwest. A fire destroyed almost the entire town of Malden, Washington, yesterday. April Ehrlich of Jefferson Public Radio is in Grants Pass, Oregon, this morning. Hi, April. Hi. What's happening where you are right now? Yeah, so there are several wildfires here in Southern Oregon. Um, One of them is about 3,000 acres, and it's covering mostly residential areas in and around Medford. Um, It's especially impacted the smaller towns to the south, like Talent, Oregon, um, where about 7,000 people live, including me. Um, I had to evacuate along with hundreds of my neighbors. There were only two ways to get out of town. It was packed with cars. Um, what should have been a 20-minute drive ended up taking an hour. Oh. Uh, what, yeah. Once my family was safe at a friend's house, I took off to do some reporting. I went to an evacuation center to get more information. I met a lot of people who lived at a mobile home park that was destroyed by the fire, including Edward Hancock. Um, here's what he saw. Dark smoke coming in and seeing houses burning and hearing houses blow up from the, probably the gas lines and so forth. So I heard popping and houses blowing up and on fire. You're one of the people, as you said, who's had to evacuate. Uh, there are tens of thousands of others. What, what is the option for you guys right now? Are you being told, like, try to go to friends' houses? Are there shelters? I mean, all of this is happening in the middle of coronavirus, so I imagine people are trying to take as much care as they can. Yeah, so local officials have only provided one evacuation center at the county fairgrounds, and they weren't providing beds to most people. They only provided beds to people who were vulnerable, like people with disabilities or people who are elderly. Uh, Those beds filled up pretty quick, and then they started directing people to another county fairground about an hour north. A lot of people I met didn't have cars, and they had to hitchhike their way to this county fairground. And I I don't know why they're not providing beds. Um, It could be that they don't want to create a a shelter where um, people could spread the coronavirus. Um, Before all of this happened, I had done some reporting on the question of what will we do if we have to evacuate people during a pandemic? At that time, the American Red Cross told me that they planned on putting people up in hotels so that they can have their own rooms. That doesn't appear to be happening right now, and all of the hotels in the surrounding area are booked. Can I ask you, I I assume that we were talking about a relatively rural area. You said a lot of people don't have cars and are hitchhiking. Why don't folks there have cars? Well, the fire is blowing through very low-income small towns. So Phoenix, Oregon, Talent, Oregon. Actually, this fire has hit a lot of mobile home parks. And then uh, can I ask you in the couple seconds we have left, what is the forecast for today? Any relief? 
No, it still looks like it's going to be very dry, very hot, very windy. There are fires all over this region, all over the state. And it, right now it feels like there's just nowhere to go where it isn't impacted by fire. Okay, April Ehrlich of Jefferson Public Radio. Thanks, April. Thank you. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation in Ontario marked a solemn anniversary over the weekend. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, it's been a quarter of a century since the Ipperwash crisis and the death of a community member. The crisis began on the Labor Day weekend of 1995. Members of the Chippewas, Kettle and Stony Point First Nation occupied the Ipperwash Provincial Park. They were protesting against a seizure of reserve land by the Canadian government during the Second World War for a military base. That land was supposed to be returned after the war, but by 1990 it still had not been. They say the land included a sacred burial ground. So, for two days, protesters and police faced off, and during a confrontation, police opened fire on a group of protesters, killing Dudley George. Chief Jason Henry was 15 years old at the time and remembers his own encounter with a police officer. He stepped out and he had an automatic rifle. He pointed at me and said, you know, you're nothing but a worthless wagon burner. I should just pull the trigger. First Nations chiefs want the Ontario government to reflect on the relationship with Native people on the 25th anniversary of Ipperwash. They say distrust still exists between their people and the authorities as a result of unaddressed inequalities. An inquiry into the deadly crisis highlighted concerns about how police handled the response. The judge found that the then Premier of Ontario, Mike Harris, and the federal government were responsible for George's death. In the latest development, the First Nation, at the end of August, was given new land, more than 110 acres, that was once part of Ipperwash Provincial Park. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Native organizers, elected officials, and members of the Native community took part in the Native Power Building Summit Tuesday. The virtual event explored advancing Native political leadership. Lori Wiaki, who's worked on Native vote issues for years in New Mexico, talked about how power is seen in many tribal communities. We're taught to think about it in terms of like, you know, get up early, pray, be strong, be respectful, be reverent. And that's what power is to an Indigenous person. You know, there were times when we'd been admonished, like, don't, don't try to be just like the Western world and think about power only in that way. And we have argued that it's important to understand that because as a people, we have been oppressed. We have been colonized. We have been, you know, forced into a way of life that wasn't the choice of our ancestors. Wiaki says power in tribal communities is the people, including knowledge, culture and resources. The summit also featured youth leaders who talked about building power in their communities at tribal, local and national levels. Voting rights advocates filed a lawsuit Tuesday challenging an absentee ballot witness requirement in Alaska. The lawsuit filed by the Native American Rights Fund and other groups seeks to waive a provision of state law for the November election, which requires absentee voters to have a witness sign their ballot. The lawsuit claims that needlessly puts Alaskans at risk during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially those who live alone, are at higher risk for disease or have to self-isolate. To vote under the requirement, they would have to interact with others or not cast a ballot. Native vote advocates point to COVID-19 hitting Native communities hard. They say the requirement could disenfranchise Native voters. The case was filed Tuesday in Anchorage Superior Court. Congress is launching an investigation following more than two dozen deaths this year at Fort Hood, which includes two members of the Navajo Nation. 
Carlton Chi and Miguel Yazzie both died this summer while serving at the Army base in Texas. Navajo Nation Council leaders say they were briefed by military commanders Tuesday as Congress opened the investigation. Tribal leaders are calling for a thorough review and are asking for transparency for families and the tribe. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's newscast airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabain with a commentary. Two weeks ago in this commentary, I discussed California's blight of third world country blackouts and argued that the power shortage blackouts were unnecessary and caused by incompetence at the highest levels of California's state government. The other kind of blackouts we are being trained to accept are the so-called public safety power shutoffs. These blackouts, we are told, are necessary to prevent wildfires like the one that burned down the town of Paradise. The real reason for such tragedies is that the power transmission lines which cross our forested mountains have not been properly maintained for decades. Power companies like PG&E have prematurely focused on the administrative and political machinations involved with a mandated conversion to green power. All this hullabaloo has been going on as they have let their existing power lines deteriorate and become invaded by dangerously flammable foliage, waiting for a spark from a faulty connection or insulator to trigger the next disaster. In short, our power utility mavens have ignored their existing infrastructure required for reliable power generation and delivery in favor of new, more expensive, and insufficient means of providing electricity for California's homes and businesses. My native country of Estonia has a perfect piece of folk wisdom to avoid such problems small and large. However, since its original salty translation may not be suitable for polite audiences, I will save it for the addendum to this commentary. Setting that aside, we need to discuss another problem baked into today's administration of public safety power shutoffs. Our electrical grid is operated by the California Independent Systems Operator, or CASO, the organization that determines the amount of electricity available to the utilities and allocates it across the state. The problem is that the current two-tiered system with CASO on top has no effective oversight to prevent launching gratuitous power blackouts. Today, blackouts are scheduled by unelected and unsupervised technocrats immune to public feedback or impact on our overall welfare. The operating principle of these bureaucrats is simply another version of CYA all the way which is always prevalent in self-preserving government bureaucracies. The result is that it costs them nothing to turn off power more widely and for longer periods than is prudent. These people will not suffer from excessive blackouts, 
but they may be liable professionally and institutionally if, God forbid, there is a wildfire later determined to have started by overgrown or overblown foliage due to the power utility's poor and ignored maintenance of their distribution system. Since there is collateral danger to life and limb from widespread power blackouts, it would make sense that oversight of these policies should be equivalent to the level of oversight that we have in place for other areas of public safety and welfare. Everything from the adoption of new medicines, production and distribution of the food we eat, the safety of our transportation systems, and the design and manufacture of the various equipments we use and operate. In short, with power shutoffs, a comprehensive view of public safety involves more than just wildfire prevention. An approach to better management of blackouts would involve making the entire process transparent. Today, we know nothing of the actual wildfire threat levels and the process used to determine where, when, and for how long power needs to be shut off. The public is treated more or less like one huge potted plant with regard to its overall concerns when word comes down that power blackouts will be implemented over some indeterminate regions and time periods. We are just told to suck it up and bear the pain because it's for our own good. I think many of us would feel much more comfortable if the criteria for all mandated power blackouts would be made a matter of public record, and that there would be an independent group of appropriately qualified members of the public to oversee and report how these criteria are applied. For openers, our legislature could pass a law to alleviate the bureaucrats' CYA all-the-way method of doing business and then look into what is required for an effective oversight effort to reduce the number and duration of power blackouts in California. My name is Rebane, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rebane's Ruminations, where the addended transcript of this commentary is posted with relevant links, and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. Thank you for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Good. <laughs>